The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Good afternoon, everybody. Good evening, good night, wherever you are and what time it is. Uh, I'd like to welcome David Proctor from New Zealand, via Turnock Moore, who's with us today. Dave is a bassist and guitarist and a very busy man and well-known musician around Galway and New Zealand. Hello, Dave. Hello. It works. <laughs> How are you? I'm brilliant, man. It's a miracle. Jesus, you're looking great. I'm feeling great, man. It's just like uh, the first even Zoom type thing that I've even done. Really? This is the first time you've ever done this? Yeah, all the way through all the lockdowns. See, I'm not working, so I don't have to put up with all this crap. All my other friends are bored shitless sitting at home in their pajamas doing their work. Wow, wow. It's great to see you. It's been a long time, no? It has been a long time, yes. Jesus, it's really been a long time. Like, I'm here seven years now, and I think, I don't know how long I saw you before I left or when it was, but it must be eight or nine years. Dude, you just have to speak slower because that Spanish accent's getting to me now. Oh, it's really bad. I'm a gringo. I'm a gringo now. <laughs> so how's everything? Are you, are you keeping well? I'm keeping better than I was at the beginning of the year, which when I was diagnosed with cancer, as you, you probably know. Yeah, but I'm, I'm absolutely fine now. But, I mean, everybody's talking about this being a bad year, but it's been a tough year for you now, no? Oh, yeah, but you don't realise, unless you're up there at uh, UHG, how much of an epidemic cancer is because it makes the whole COVID thing look like nothing, you know, and everyone's in there, little kids, old people, you, you know, it's everybody. Yeah. Yeah. My, my mom had her own battle last year around the uh, last, last October now. And she, she got over it. Um, she had cancer of the esophagus and um, she's, I mean, she's doing great now. You know, she, she was do, getting the treatment and getting CBD oil and so she's doing brilliant and the cancer's gone um, and she's 73. So hopefully it won't come, but you never know. But but the thing is, yeah, she had a tough few months and you know yourself, the chemo is hard work, isn't it? Oh, the, chemo was, the chemo was tough, but uh, yeah, I'm just so happy and grateful to be here now. What was What's the weather like? I see the trees blowing a little bit behind you. Oh, that's the tropical breezes, man. <laughs> yeah. Look, look, I'm in my shorts. Yeah, look, I'm in my you're shorts. in Bermuda, <laughs> and they're short shorts. <laughs> look, I got, I got flip-flops. Brilliant. Yeah, no, no, I got the heating on. It's okay. If it's the heating on, I, I have to wear It's just too hot. If you want to curse or anything, yeah. say bad words, don't worry about it. This is an explicit show. So the yeah. Howard Stern of Barcelona. I'm the Howard Stern, yeah, of Madrid, not Barcelona. Howard oh, Stern. <laughs> Madrid, well, you, yeah. you, you'll get there one I'll day. I'll get to Barcelona one day, one day. <laughs> so here, I have a cup of tea, so cheers. I'm no beer at the moment. I've no beer, so. That's okay. I'm off the beer. I'm off the beer. I'm off the drugs. You're off the beer and the drugs. Okay, okay. Well, not the high-tech cancer-saving-your-life drugs. Not those drugs. I'm definitely on those. You have the CBD without the THC. <laughs> I, no, I even gave up the CBD. Really? really annoying because, yeah, I've got a shitload of weed, and I thought, nah, nah, don't need it. Wow. You can send it over to me. <laughs> No, uh, Spain has plenty. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> How are you dealing with the whole lockdown situation? Well, this is my second lockdown. Uh, I've been keeping myself amused, pl playing guitar again for the first time in a long time, and uh, doing a bit of light reading. Oh, very good. The Norse myths. 
The North Smith. So for anyone who can't see it, this is The North Smith. Who's the author? Who's the author? It's a gentleman from Cork called uh, Dr. Tom Birkin. Yeah. Very amusing. It's um, a factual book rather than a fictitious. It is. No, it's, it is The North Smith. And, you know, so it is what it is. Whether it's fictitious or not. Hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, there's always a bit of drama thrown in with the Vikings, isn't there, for sure? Oh, there is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and are you um, with the with the lockdown? You said this is the second one for you as well. Uh, like, which one was more difficult, the first one or this one? Well, I think the first one because uh, you know I got diagnosed with cancer at the beginning of the year, just before it happened. And luckily, my family, my sister and my brother, were able to come over for a week before uh, before it really got locked down. They managed to leave the country just in time as well, which is great. But uh, the first lockdown, when I got out of the hospital, was really bad, uh, simply because I had a whole lot of things going on with my body. Like I had a catheter bag in for about six weeks after leaving the hospital and I had to try and manage that. And, uh, you know, keep. I was working at a local electronics store and had to keep them abreast of what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that was very tough because everything shut down. Uh, except the local gas station, except the pharmacy, and except the doctors. Everything else was shut, and the supermarket. This is like a kind of a, a lockdown that, like, stuff is still open. Like, the hardware stores are open now. You've got appliance stores still open. And you've got people sort of, uh, yeah, they're obeying the rules, but uh, there's still a lot of people just driving around doing whatever the hell they want. You know, so it's not as strict as it was last time, but I have to be very careful because uh, I'm at high risk still because uh, I'm still receiving cancer treatment, you see. At any stage during the whole uh, lockdown, did you get any flus or anything? Did you no, have any scares? No, not at all. No. See, well, the wife kept working, but she was in the office, office on her own. So, no, I haven't had anything like that. I've been very fortunate. All I was doing was going to the doctors, going to the pharmacy, and then coming home again, and that was it for however however many weeks it was. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's good. That's good. So, so Dave, let's um, let's go back a little bit. So, how many years are you in Ireland now? Well, I uh, moved here in June. Uh, what was it? June two thousand and seven. Yeah. So it's a good few years now. It's over a decade, anyway. Yeah, and was it a big culture shock from Wellington? Did you come from Wellington no, at that time? No, you did? no, we came from Auckland. No, it wasn't a, a big culture shock at all. No, no it's, it's very much like New Zealand, uh, except you don't have the Asians. There's a huge Asian, and you don't have the Polynesian uh, and the Maori cultures. You don't have that here. Uh, but you know the we have, we have our we have our own type of Maoris. I... <laughs> 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 yeah, well, yeah. The I was, about to say, I was about to say the Irish are very much like the Maoris. You know, the big three-day funerals, the heavy drinking. Yeah. So somebody has told somebody said that to me once. They said um, I never realised until I went to New Zealand that we had our own Maoris in Ireland. <laughs> they, they're not. They're not like ethnically. They don't look the same, but the same characteristics and the same type of culture. And around drinking and everything, so they said it's crazy. Big families and all the rest of it, yeah. You were born and grew up in Wellington, didn't you? No, well, no, I was born in Wellington, and uh, we left Wellington when I was five years old. Okay, my father, okay. My father was in the Air Force for many years, and he was transferred to Auckland. Uh, oh, interesting. There was a huge gap between my sister and myself. Uh, I'm the youngest, 
and then there was a, a, like a nine-year gap between me and her. Uh, all before that, they spent the whole time being transferred around different uh, military bases and in the South Pacific as well, Fiji, for example. So they got dragged all around the place. Uh, I got I got it at the very end where it was all settled and the folks had, actually had some money. So, of course, being, being the youngest, I was a sport rotten. Yeah, so you you were, didn't travel as much as your brothers and sisters, no? No, but I've, I've made up for it in later life now. Yeah, yeah, you did you did your bit. And was your dad, what, what was his job in the Air Force? Was he working as a mechanic or a pilot? No, or uh, he, uh, he, his last role was a flight lieutenant. Uh, but like he, to be honest, I was so young, I didn't really know what his role was. And then by the time I sort of got old enough, he had moved on from there to another government job. So he, he left, left the Air Force at that point. But uh, I think he, he left uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. But, uh, yeah, so what I heard every now and again, he was on Hercules transport planes and that, and going into Southeast Asia and that, places like that. Yeah, but, like, he joined the Air Force when he was very young. So, yeah, he'd been, been through the whole thing. You left Wellington when you were five. Where, and where did you go then? We moved to uh, a place called Northcote in Auckland, which is uh, yeah, which is where I went to school. Uh, so yeah, I went to primary school there, intermediate school, and uh, college uh, there. Like I was the only one left at the home at home by the time I I'd sort of reached uh, college. So yeah, I, I had the free run on the place. It was great. When you look back now, do you think did you have a happy childhood there in Auckland? Did you really enjoy it? Uh, it was uh, Auckland was great. Uh, you know, there's lots of beaches and things like that. Uh, the, like any family, there there are eruptions in the family, of so the home, home life could be rough. Uh, in the end, I sort of found solace in playing guitar and going surfing and stuff like that. You know, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, and. Like as it in that town when you were a teenager, you know, besides playing music, what you had other hobbies like surfing, and did you do other things as well? Yeah, yeah, I did a bit of skateboarding too. I did a bit of uh, whacking school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone a does a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if the, if, the, if the surf was good down at one of the beaches, like I would disappear with the surfboard, <laughs> looking out the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so stuff like that. But uh, going back there now, the whole culture of the place has changed. The local shopping centre was built in the 1950s, and at that time uh, it was a very sort of, um, how should I say, a, a white New Zealand culture. And then and you would have uh, the Maori, a certain degree of Maori people and Polynesian Pacific Islanders. Now if you go to that same shop, shopping centre, it's just full-on Chinese uh, and just Asian Asian groceries, sushi. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, literally all of the businesses are now Chinese businesses. Yeah. So it's really changed. Yeah. Wow. Was your mom and dad, were they both from Wellington originally or where were they from? Well, my father was from Auckland. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about people who were born in the 1930s in the middle of the, the, the Great Depression. Uh, so uh, he was born in Auckland. Uh, he was the youngest again, of uh, nine, I think he had nine sisters ahead of him. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, big, big family. And my mother, uh, she was uh, part Maori. She was born uh, in a rural part of New Zealand, very isolated part of New Zealand. 
to give a comparison, like uh, my father grew up in a in a, a Victorian villa, and my mother, the house she was born in, had a dirt floor. So huge, huge difference. You know, it would be like uh, a house in Connemara versus a house in Dublin at, back in the 1930s. You know, so she ended up being a nurse. He was in the air force. Uh, they went out for a dance. You know, one thing led to another. Yeah, as it does. That's interesting, Ari, when you see people from different backgrounds and they get together. And, of course, then... The and cultures. Yeah, yeah, and cultures. And the next story then, obviously, is, you know, where their life goes from there. But your dad had an interest in life moving around. And, and your mom, too, because she was involved in it all. Did, did she work yeah, when your dad well, the thing around? Is, uh, she started out being a nurse. Uh, so she was a nurse before she met my father, and she also sung and, play, and played in a, a big band. She was a singer in one of the, the big bands. Okay. Uh, okay. So that sort of thing. So, I mean, they traveled a, around a lot when they were first married, and it was the culture at the time that the man was the breadwinner, so she, she was not allowed to work. Now, that, that you know, a lot, lot – can you imagine that today in, in, in the culture? No, you're not going to work. You're going to stay home. <laughs> no, yeah, that's your job. Yeah, and, but I mean, that was it. And that used to be the same in Ireland, too. I remember my mom and dad. And, you know, I, I, I always remember my mom when she was, you know, after my dad died a few years later, my mom was like at that time, what? Let me see. If you, uh, she was probably in her late or 60s. Um, she decided to go back to university and she had been a housewife all her life. So... It was like, here's something I've missed that I want to do. But that was the thing. That was the norm for women in that kind of culture, whether it be in New Zealand or Ireland. You know, you stay at home, look after the kids. I'll go and make the money. And, you know, that's the way it is. It was a bit more than that. It was the head putting his foot down. You are not going to work. <laughs> you know, so it was a lot tougher back then. You don't have the same rights I had, you know, so basically. But the funny thing was, it is crazy. But the, look, and I would go to university myself now. And I'm in my fifties uh, to do this, that, and the next year. And it wasn't for COVID. <laughs> and all these students spread, spreading all around the place, just wanting to party and party and drink all the time. <laughs> yeah. And there's plenty of online courses I could do. But that aside, the funny thing was, me being the youngest, when I came along, which is in 1967. Now I was born. Uh, my brother was born. My brother and sister were born in the 19 end of the 1950s. When I came around. My mother was definitely working at that point, and I found out it was because he never used to give her any housekeeping money. <laughs> so, so yeah, you were stuck at home with no money. You could do anything with this husband who wasn't going to give you any money to pay for stuff. So, yeah, she went out and just did what she wanted in the end. And uh, sure, that it, he had to like it. He had to lump it. That was very common, wasn't it? Because I know with my own dad as well, you know, he loved the horses and the drinking. And unfortunately, that was the problem in those times was men felt, oh, I worked hard and I deserve to have my few drinks and have my vices and so on. It's funny because in New Zealand at that time, all the pubs closed at 6 p.m. in the evening. So the guys would rush out of their jobs and go straight to the bars and then strip themselves silly and then go home and beat up the wives. Uh, and all this sort of all this sort of crack. Now, uh, my father found out, and rather early, I would imagine that he actually married a, a bit of a warrior princess 
So she wasn't going to put up with this. So the funny thing was, all the pots and pans in our house had big dents in them. <laughs> Your dad was on the receiving end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd start, come home and start throwing stuff around, and then watch out, wallop. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, fair, fair play to her because, you know, that's the thing. There was a lot of women that couldn't stand up for themselves. And it's great to hear about someone who could because imagine how many more women would be dead or in the grave if they couldn't stand up for themselves. That's right. And the other thing was uh, sticking around in, in, in a bad marriage uh, for the children. For the children, yeah. That was the common thing. That was the common thing. You know, but I moved. When I moved out, they were still together, but they weren't really, you know. You know, they're still living under the same roof. They're still under the same roof, but they're all off doing their own things. She was making her own money, and you know. Yeah, are your are your parents both alive still? Or? No, they're no, they're long gone. Yeah, back in the nineteen Yeah, my mother died suddenly at work. <laughs> work, funnily enough, uh, she got a headache one day, and uh, had to go and lie down. And uh, unfortunately, she didn't wake up again. She got taken to hospital, and it was an aneurysm. How uh, old was she? Oh, gee, she was uh, about 63. Yeah, look, she was only 10 years older than I am now. Yeah, and uh, the dad, he uh, developed bowel cancer. Uh, too much KFC, I'm afraid. And, 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 and red meat. Uh, and it, he, uh, it took him about five years to die. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite funny because his father, who was also David Proctor, he died of lung cancer uh, as a result of asbestos poisoning. My father died of bowel cancer, and here I am with prostate cancer. Wow. And uh, and this is the thing. So, yeah, it spread through the tr three David Proctors. And how old was your dad when he went? Uh, he was about 64. So similar age to your mum. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So if I can crack out another 10 years, Simon, I'll be happy. <laughs> wow. Well, don't worry. You will. You will. You will. Uh, <laughs> you'll be like, that's my timeline. You will. Well, no, my, no, my plan is to kick it all completely and go in for a CAT scan one day and have the professor's battle. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what you want. How long after your mom died did your dad die? How many years apart was it? Oh, a good uh, six or seven years. Was it one of these things when she died? Did it completely change him? I mean, maybe he was lost without her. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, 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 you know, it's hard to say because in that, in, at that time, men don't don't talk about their feelings. You know, you know I'm the exception to the to, to the three of three David Proctors. <laughs> I don't care. Who knows? Just be aware. Of that, you know, can't do the thing, and people need to go and get their prostate checked. Yeah, fixed yeah, on. I know, I know. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to, we're going to get, we're going to. By the time this is over, everyone's going to be booking appointments. We're going to try and do that. Yeah. So come here. Yeah, you listen. It's only a blood test first. It's only a blood test. Not the finger straight away. Okay. No, no. <laughs> the doc, it's not the doctor with the big finger. <laughs> two fingers here. No. <laughs> I was very lucky. I had a very sexy female doctor. <laughs> So when you came home to your wife, you went, wow, and it was a woman and two fingers, so it wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, come here. Yeah. Let's, just, uh, lucky I can laugh about well, it. Of course. Well, that's all you can do now is laugh, you know. So listen, um, one question I was thinking there when you were talking about the town, how big was the town? Was it like two or 3,000 people or more? At so that time, there would have probably been 800 to 900 thousand people living in 
in the 1960s there. And uh, Auckland uh, today is the, even though it's not the capital, it's the biggest city. There's probably about 1.5 to 1.7 million people living there. Your town in particular, was that a small town in like in Auckland? No, I was in the city. So it's all broken up into suburbs. If you could imagine a, a town the size of Dublin, uh, you know, and how Dublin has taken over all the uh, the, out, the counties around it. Yeah, so in all the boroughs, yeah, it all becomes one. Now it's it's called a super city. Super city now, yeah, it was super high taxes. Super high taxes, I can imagine, and a lot about a lot about the thing. And come here right now, you know, with your your family who are in New Zealand, are they all in New Zealand, or, or are they in different places? Uh no, they're all in New Zealand. Yeah, I did have a niece who was teaching English in South Korea. Uh, but she's uh, married now and living in the south of uh, New Zealand. So everyone's in New Zealand now. But uh, for me, see, it's such a hassle now. If I wanted to go down to New Zealand, I would land at Auckland Airport, go through customs, and then be put on a bus straight to a isolation hotel for two weeks. For two weeks. There's no just getting off and going going somewhere to isolate because I don't trust people to do that. So, uh, you know, and if if you're a foreigner, uh, you get stuck with a bill for four grand to cover that. Too really? Late. So they, they charge if you? You're a New, yeah. Yeah. If you're a New Zealander and you're planning on staying less than three months, you get stuck with that bill as well. So so that's really a, a, an expat living in Ireland or England goes home for a month and they get a bill. Uh, listen, anyway, everyone knows what the what the thing is. You're not going there for a month. You're going to go for at least three months and not pay that bill. Right, right. That's the only way of doing it. Well, that's the only way they've found of, of, of you know, trying to keep the coronavirus out of New Zealand. Wow. And so how, how has the coronavirus affected your family over there? I mean, how are they doing with it all? Well, uh, they've been fine, actually, yeah. I mean, at the moment, I spoke to my sister two days ago. Uh, there's a big perception that New Zealand is COVID-free. Mm. Uh, it's not entirely correct. There's about 50 cases here at the moment. But that's still very good, no? Yeah, I think there's only been one or two people that have died of it altogether since I'm getting there. So you think from the beginning they handled it very well? Well, I think they handled it as well as they could have done. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing, good thing about New Zealand is it's an island nation like Ireland, but it, it, it has no open borders at all anywhere. Uh, I think the most recent cases to come in came in on ships. Okay, with crew that were already infected. Yeah. We're already infected, yeah, sailors or yeah. our trawler men or whatever. Okay, and so tell us, let, let's go, your, your wife Mags, where did you meet? How did you meet Mags? Well, we were both working uh, in a company in New Zealand that um, does disability services for handicapped people, shall we say, or people with disabilities. So that's where we met. Uh, yeah. How, when, how many years ago was that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, was 20, it was 21 years ago now. 21 years. That's, uh, that's is that, what, 21 years is silver, no? Or platinum? No, it's silver, isn't it? Well, I asked my wife, yeah, well, and she said it was nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, the marriage is nothing. Never mind the, nothing. the anniversary. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, because yeah, I said, yeah, what, what's like, yeah, I'll, I'll just throw the question out here. No, it's nothing. 
<laughs> Don't worry about it. So you may uh, another. I mean, yeah, you know, literally another twenty years of torture before it's anything. You cannot, yeah, that's that's when you get something. A kick in the arse, get out. I don't need to know. So when you when you met Mags, let's say you're working disability, and did you like did you start dating kind of straight away, or did we working colleagues for a long time? Ah uh, no, like when I first met Mags, uh, she had this flaming red hair, right? And I had a you know I would think for redheads. Good job yeah. I'm not a redhead. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and female. And female, yeah, female. And, okay. and female, yeah. And female, sorry. You should have stipulated yeah. that. Yeah to, be, yeah, to be fair, I do like blondes and brunettes as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're narrowing <laughs> it down. Yeah, I know. The thing was, uh, so, yeah, our first date was we actually went uh, for a meal and then we went to a movie and we went and saw Titanic. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh God, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the so, best first movie. Yeah, it was quite funny because I, I, I was getting all these signals apparently, but I wasn't picking up with them because you know I'm just a dumb guy. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm cold. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's my oh, jacket. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm tired. Oh, right. Anyway, she fell asleep. She fell asleep for halfway through. You were like, go over and sit beside the radiator. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I must have ended up doing some something right because you know I'm still I'm still you're still together. around. Yeah. So, Ma what was Mags's? <laughs> you're still around at the moment. What was Mags's story? Was she working there for a few years, or would she went over young, or what happened? Well, what happened was that uh, she is the. Uh, the youngest and oh no, is she the youngest in her family? She might not be the youngest, but she's the only girl in her family anyway. And her mother died when she was very young. because we she's from here on in Turlockmore, which is a farming area. And uh what she ended up doing back in the early eighties was moving to Scotland and doing some nursing. So she was a nurse. And then uh she thought it might be a good idea to go to Melbourne nursing. So on her way to Melbourne she decided she was going to uh, stop off in New Zealand for a holiday and never left. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, well, yes, it is cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, see, I, I don't want to get myself in trouble by revealing too much about her because she's a very private person. But anyway, that, that's a roundabout story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but, like, lucky for you, she stopped off for a holiday and didn't have quarantine that time, so you got to meet her. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, you're you're contemplating that one. You're like, is it, maybe it wasn't lucky for her. I don't know. You're not sure. Tell us then. You got, when did you get married? We got married in 1999, and uh, yeah, we uh, and look, uh, we'd been going out for about two years, and uh, my dad was very ill with cancer at that stage. Uh, and I didn't want to make a big fuss about everything, so we thought, ah. Oh, just sneak off to Las Vegas and get married. So that's what we did. Now, not knowing that it it caused caused a lot of ill feeling in the family us doing that. Right. <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, anyway, that's what happened, though. Yeah. Well, that is what happened, and I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know because me and Alex got married last year in Las Vegas, and the thing is, we yeah we did last last October, and the thing is. Um, it does, like you do it for yourself and that's who you should do it for. You're the man and woman or woman and woman, whoever it is. Uh, but the point, man and man, yeah, dog and dog, it doesn't matter. The thing is, you do it for yourself. 
yeah, that, that'd be good on two dogs in Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> so you, you do it for yourself. And the thing is, we didn't want a big fuss and we wanted to kind of be on our own and get married and stuff. So we just met it. But of course, yeah, without saying names, there are certain, there'd be certain people go, oh, why are they doing that? Or why don't they have a traditional wedding? You'll always get some hostility. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, it wasn't bad. My dad was happy with that. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we had we had fun. And what? Tell me, what what uh, what uh, chapel did you go to? We, we got married in. We 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 stayed in this lovely hotel called the Artisan Hotel. It was kind of like a, a a rock and roll type boutique hotel. Very nice. No gambling. We didn't want a gambling hotel. So we got married. We got married actually though in the Westgate Hotel in the Elvis's Elvis's wife's chapel, the 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 Chapel of Crystals. <laughs> I didn't realize you were into all that crystal shit too, man. So am I. <laughs> no, it wasn't. The name didn't do it for me. Don't start channeling. Don't start channeling stuff now. <laughs> don't start channeling right now. Yeah, listen. <laughs> no, we 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 found this um, this chapel, and it was only the the West Westgate Hotel used to be the international hotel in Las Vegas, and that's where Elvis used to play his residency was. But his wife Priscilla. But um, the, he, Elvis used to do officiate the weddings in her chapel, this little chapel. And she still owns it, but it, I think now it's like a franchise. So every time they get paid, she gets paid a little bit. So the, the deal is, and when you go in, you know, we didn't have Elvis or nothing like that. We just got married, but they, on the certificate, they have a picture of Elvis. So they're still hanging on to his uh his like image and everything and the whole thing, but it was lovely. It was nice. And uh, Vegas is Vegas. I mean, you have to take it for what it is. It's a little bit tacky, but it's fun. And if you're adventurous, open people, it's great fun. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we did have Elvis, and he yeah. was funny. He, he sung "Love Me Tender." You know, really? <laughs> yeah. We got, funny. We got married in uh, Circus Circus Casino. Oh yes, yes. Oh yes, yes. Wow. opposite the Riviera. And they've got this nice little, I think it's called Chapel of the Fountain. And we just... Uh... <laughs> All the names are hilarious. Chapel oh. of the Fountain, Chapel of Crystals. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's like it was, another planet. It was nice, but the night before uh, the actual service, uh, we thought, yeah, we'll go and have do a bit of gambling on the slot machine. So we went down, and while Max was fumbling, I shouldn't say fumbling, well, well Max was pulling something out of her bag. Yeah. yeah. All the jewelry fell out onto the floor without a <gasps> thing. Yeah, really, all yeah. the rings, all the rings, like, and not just the wedding rings, like a lot of family jewelry. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, all the jewelry she stole. <laughs> no, no, but it wasn't like we're talking like tens of thousands worth of jewels there. <gasps> and wow. when we got back to the room, she realised that something was wrong. Yeah, you know, panicking, panicking. Uh, so yeah, I went down to the security desk and uh, I told him, "Look, I think they've lost his rings." Anyway, Sydney held up this pouch with all the jewellery in the pouch. The pouch that they found it. They found it, all right. And what had happened is we had walked away, not realizing that we'd even lost anything. Yeah. Some guy had come along and seen it and picked up, and he thought, "Great, I've just found all the stuff." And then he realized, not God, the eye in the sky. So he went to them and they saw everything on the camera anyway. So he went to them. 
he had to, he had to go and hand them in. Otherwise, wow. otherwise it would have been a knock on the door and the cops would have raided his house sort of situation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you got it back very quickly because oh, he, could have, he could have said, oh, I'm out of here, gone to a pawn shop, sold it for half its value, mm. and then you could have been trying to track it down for weeks. Oh, well, yeah, well, it would have been gone, yeah. But yeah. So, so we were very lucky in that regard. It was just one of those funny stories. How many days did you stay in Vegas? Uh, we stayed about seven days in Vegas and spent about 15 grand in the process. Oh, I remember you said that to me once. You said, <laughs> I said, did you spend like much money? And you were like thousands. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. It was great. But it's it's a one time thing, isn't it? I mean, you know. Well, it is now. I mean, who wants to go to America now? Really? Well, but the, I said that to Alex, my wife, the other day. I said, wow, we were lucky we did it last year. Imagine if we said we'll wait till summer. It would have never happened. We had a 14-day trip. We started driving in San Francisco. We went to Yosemite, Sequoia, Death Valley, Grand Canyon. And then we went to Vegas, got married, spent four days. And then we drove to Palm Springs, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, and finished back in San Francisco to see Metallica with the Symphony Orchestra. So it was great. And But we did... In in the, with four days in Vegas and ten days driving, and in those ten days we did uh, three thousand miles. So we were just like constantly going. Oh wow! So it was great fun. Though. It was great yeah. fun. Oh yeah, I mean I was constantly going too, but it was mainly whiskey. Whiskey, yeah, yeah. yeah. You said yeah. whiskey and like steaks this thick, you know. Uh, now I've got friends in America I'd like to go and visit, but uh, I don't think I'd feel safety, and I don't think I could get Margaret to go there anyway. Not now. Maybe Hawaii. We've been to Hawaii. Hawaii was lovely. I'd lo- yeah, I've never been to Hawaii. I'd say it's oh, beautiful. I'd go there again. Funny story. We uh, went to Hawaii back in 2011, and um, we stopped in uh, at LAX in Los Angeles, and we're going through customs, and the passport officials looking at our documents, and then he goes, uh, "Listen, I see on your wife's passport she doesn't doesn't have your surname." Yeah, yeah, she's using it. And you allow that, do you? He said. <laughs> you allow that? Said, yeah. Surname, she can do it. It was like, yeah, yeah. Well, Jesus, how backward is America, you know? But anyway, so that was, it was funny. I laughed. She didn't laugh. <laughs> wow. No, I, I can't imagine she laughed. Like, you allow that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and, like, he just totally ignored her and was just addressing me the whole time. The man of the house. <laughs> and you're saying to him, if only you knew who the real boss was. Well, you know, we all we all have to serve somebody, so you know. Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. So, but that's I mean, you'll always have that. I think America is such a different place. I mean, there's you know, it's it's crazy when you go between states and you start getting towards the Midwest, how things change and people are very different. And even, you know, even in, in the East Coast, in New York, compared to the West Coast, huge difference in the people, too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think that, you know, this last election, you've really seen the differences in America come out. Yeah, you know? come out, for sure, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's very much in the end. And, you know, the, the next shock is going to be in 2024 when he runs again and gets in, probably. 
Well, if they can even get him out the first, this, this, you know, the <laughs> can get him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he might say, "Listen, I'm just going to stay here till the next election because I think what's going to happen for sure, he's going to get back in unless somebody amazing comes forward as a candidate." And I don't mean Lady Gaga. <laughs> I know someone said to me, "Lady Gaga could run." I'm like, "Oh God," um, but yeah, I think he'll be back. And, you know, America will continue doing what it's doing. So, come here, let's, let's change topic. Let's go on to the music a little bit. Um, so when did, when, did you, when did you get into music first? Like, what, can you, your earliest memory of wanting to play? And Yeah, well, I was probably about uh, eight or nine years old. And my brother-in-law at the time, he was a bass player in a band, had a, had a really nice Fender bass. And he was letting me play it. And uh, it was actually something I was just, uh, a bit of a natural at. So... Learned a few little uh, things from him and uh, sort of went on from there till I was about 11. And then uh, I got sent off to have guitar lessons. Right. Yeah. And took up guitar for a while, all through those heady days of the 80s, you know, with the hair and. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the Eddie Van Halen, all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, everybody wanted to be like that. So Everybody wanted to be Eddie Van Halen. But but in, in New Zealand in that time, I mean, you and between New Zealand and Australia with Midnight Oil and, and all those types of bands, was there a good scene there at that time? Well, it's a bit like Ireland in that um, it was good to go and see live music. Yeah, a huge number of international acts come through. I remember uh, I went to see uh, Pink Floyd, uh, and they had the big quadraphonic sound system at, at Western Springs Stadium. Uh, wow. The Flying Pigs and all the rest of the it. Flying Pigs, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Scold a bottle of uh, vodka on the way in. Why yeah. not? Why not? You had to do it. Yeah, and so, so that was great. When you look back now, and you were like play, you were playing bass for a while, and then you started playing guitar. Did you say, okay, I want to be a bass player still, or I want to be a guitarist more? Uh, listen, it was always a thing that I wanted to be a bass player, but uh, I also wanted to be a guitarist. So I had to go, you know, go and experience that, and it ca- sort of came around full circle. I've only just started playing guitar again recently. Right, uh, right. Because uh, yeah. uh, when I moved to Ireland, uh, you know, yourself, there are many, many quality guitar players here. And, yeah, I've done some uh, some gigs playing guitar, and it was happy out. But uh, your bass, bass is just something I never had to really think much about to do. It, it was more guitar, natural for you. Yeah, whereas guitar, it's like, oh, yeah, all the pedals, oh, Jesus, six strings, and, you know, tiny. And plus, once you play bass and you go back to guitar, it's like playing a, a kiddies instrument almost. Yeah, right? it's a different thing. It has... And yeah. for some people, excuse me, I remember talking to a guy and he was saying something similar. He said, for me, I always had felt that power in my fingers, whether I was playing a four string or five string and the thickness of the strings and go back, go back playing guitar. It's a different feeling, you know, yeah. and different constantly, feeling. And constantly tuning as well. You know, a bass stays in tune pretty much. <laughs> you can have a bass on the shelf for years and you take it down and it's still in tune. I know that, yeah. <laughs> No, I just had the reverse of that where I pulled these guitars that I haven't played in five years out of a bag. Now, they had elixirs on them, and it's like the day they went in, and they were in tune. So it's not always that case, but it's only because I never 
I haven't been playing them. Yeah, yeah, they weren't used. They weren't used. They were just sitting there. Was it a case when you were younger then and you started kind of playing in bands, did you get bands together or did you audition for bands? What happened? No, I just auditioned for bands. Uh, I did have a, a go at uh, writing some tunes, but I found that, uh, you know, it's very hard work, man. And you know yourself, uh, there's, there's a lot rallied against new music even today, you know. As far yeah, as it's very difficult new music and getting stuff out and on the radio, the record companies don't want your stuff, new stuff on the radio. They want to keep making money out of the stuff that, that they've already gotten that's been signed. You know, the more artists there are, there's only a certain amount of time for airtime. You know? Yeah, and the, the unfortunate thing about it is now radio has become so commercial, and I mean even local radio stations, it's impossible for artists to get their music played. Even like you can have it, you could say, "I'm a local artist. Is there any chance of getting my song played in the radio?" And they're like, "Oh, it's not that easy at the moment because every song they put on has to be approved because they're thinking it's all about the advertisers. So it's all this big factory. It's a factory." Yeah, I think uh, Go Away Bay FM will still do it from time to time. And as you found out, there's a, a local radio station in Lockray. A great radio. This is great. Yeah, this is, a, this is a great radio station. I mean, you know, it, it's funny because I've, what I've discovered in the last few months, you know, since we released our last single there with, with Lockray Radio and also... Um, I don't know, there's a guy in Curfin called Big Sam, but there's Freedom Gold Radio. I don't know, have you seen this? It's like, it's where some DJs are doing it from their house and they've set up an internet radio station. And I mean, it's brilliant. There's like one that has a country show, one that has classic hits and different things. But, you know, they're probably not making any money at all, but they're doing it for the love of it. They're doing it for the love of it. And they're playing, like, the thing is, if they come across local artists, they're like, yeah, I'll play it because I have nothing to lose. Because the thing is, I don't have these advertisers breathing down my neck and I don't have radio programmers and all this kind of malarkey. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough time. So when you, were, when you were in bands that time, like did, did you kind of stay with one band for a long time or did you go between different bands? Uh, well, you know yourself, bands will start off, they will have a certain mm. life cycle and then... The, yeah. then Repeatedly, things happen in bands. Yes. Bands are hard to keep together. Oh, yeah. Well, you're wrangling a whole lot of different personalities with huge egos some of the time. You know, and, uh, you know, and addictions even. So there's, there's always a, a band, yeah, there's always the energy at the beginning. It'll go for a while and then something will cause it uh, to fold. And you just move on, either jump ship before it happens or you do what I, like when I moved to Ireland, what I was doing was I was playing in about three or four different bands. And that went on for ages until I found the group of people that I was really happy with playing. And we were, we were mainly playing bars and motorcycle rallies, which is great. Uh, motorcycle rallies would be my favorite gig ever. Yeah, motorcycle. I remember that a band I used to be in, No Alibi, were like a classic rock band, and we used to love doing the motorcycle rallies because the thing is, you know, it's it's a shame sometimes you're in a band and like you're doing classic rock and everything, and then you go into a venue and they're like, oh, could you do something more commercial? And you know, we don't want it so heavy, and we don't want it. And you're like, we're not that heavy. We're not thrash metal, you know. We're playing like Thin Lizzy, Metallica, Guns N' Roses, in Motorhead. But 
it's classic rock. But the thing is, on the motorcycle rallies, they love that shit. They want more and more of that. And the other side of it is anything goes. Anything goes. Uh, anything goes. Yeah, yeah. You exactly, and you can play what you want. You can do what you want, and it's great crack. Yeah, exactly. As long as you don't upset, set you know the big burly cyclists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the the thing is with those gigs. As long as you can keep the energy going and give them what they want, and they want to hear the tunes, they want to have fun, and when you can do that, but. That's probably getting like besides the whole COVID thing. That's probably getting more difficult for bands because maybe there aren't as many classic rock cover bands out there anymore. Well, I think the whole industry here in Ireland is on hold right now. I mean, there's no motorcycle rallies. Hopefully next year, but who knows what's going to happen? I don't think uh, anything will ever be the same again. It's certainly not going back to the normal, whatever the hell that ever was, because everyone. It was perception of normal or something else, something different anyway. But, but I read this morning very briefly that the government are bringing in this new kind of weekly allowance of 325 euro for, for musicians. Is that true? Did you hear about that? Uh, no, I didn't hear about that. What I did hear about recently was uh, a friend of mine, Carl Clues, posted it on Facebook. Was There was a, a funding round for out-of-work for out people in the industry. Uh, and one of the stipulations was they had to have been in receipt of previous funding from the past three years to qualify. Well, what was previous funding? Where, how would you get that? Yeah, well, unless you were previously funded, forget about it. Yeah, but what what do they mean funded by the Arts Council or yeah. what? Yeah, so you've got your big outfits, uh, you know, your big name bands who might have received some funding. So the, really the money is just going back into the same pockets and the big money go around. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of bands wouldn't have had that funding because sometimes they only give it to select, like maybe theater groups or some bands. Or yeah, that's what I'm alluding to. Basically, it's a big fix. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Without saying names, I know what you mean. Um, well, that's that's a shame because you know, right now it's really crazy, and you know what can musicians do? Because the point is. If they can't go out and play, if they even if you're a roadie or anything, if with bigger bands, you have no income and it's impossible to live, no? Yeah, well, what the governments, of course, and the British government uh, is a big advocate of this. What they would like you to do is retrain for a job in computer yeah. or something in like computing. that. Yeah. yeah. Or make, perhaps, make music with computers. Yeah, or perhaps you know, become a courier driver because that's really big right now. Yeah, or join the army, maybe. Maybe join the army. And you're like, as a musician... They're like, no, no, not as a musician. No, no, yeah, a lot of musicians are too unhealthy because of their lifestyle. They even consider that, and you know, it would be funny in that interview, you know, if they're saying, "Okay, so we have a job for you as a courier," and you're like, like delivering musical instruments, and and they're like, "No, no, it's nothing to do with music." And you're like, "Oh, what else have you?" And they said, "We have a job in the army, playing the bugle." No, 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 you'd be a soldier. You'd be like, so there's no music involved at all. No, play the bugle, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that, that's oh, the closest clearly. you probably get. There'll be there'll be no bass playing, you know. Um, so, so I remember the first time I met you was with um, uh, was it what's his name, John Donnelly's brother, um, F- Finton, wasn't it? Wasn't that the first? That was the first time we met. I can't remember if that if it was. Um... All I can remember is the first time I met Alexandra. Yeah. Well, thanks. 
And where is she now? Where is she? She's with me, but she's at work. She's at work. She's, she's at work. Working. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good she's man. working. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. It is papers coming in. Yeah, it's it's come full circle. She says to me, "You have to stay at home and interview famous people." And I'm like, "I'm on it. I'm on it." Well, I wouldn't know about famous, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're 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 minor. You're minor going on major celebrity. No, but I remember when I remember when we. I think that was the first time we met. Was um, I answered an ad for? I think Finton Donnelly was looking for a guitar player, and and uh, oh, what's his okay. name? Dermot was the, Dermot was playing drums and you were playing bass. Remember that in a big shed next to his house. In the shed, in in, oh, in okay. Clare Remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do now. That was probably what two thousand and six or two thousand and five. No, oh, it was later. No, two thousand and eight. Two thousand and eight. Yeah, yeah. So you were yeah because you arrived two thousand and seven. You said so. I remember that. That was the first time we met, and I did that for a few months. I don't know if I left before you did. Uh, yeah, I stuck it out for quite a few gigs. It was, you know, it was a great pleasure, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. do you ever see Finton now? Where is he? I do, I do. I think he, he's still working for the for the local council, and I, I see his brother Johnny. Oh, John, yeah, John, yeah, John's still active in the Go Art scene, isn't he? Still is, yeah, he's still running uh, Arcana. Arcana, yeah. So tell us now, um, with you in the before COVID and everything, were you playing with many bands or just one or two or what? what? I was only, I was really only playing in one band called Roadhouse, which is uh, a hard rock band, and that's the band we were doing all the uh, the uh, biker rallies, and we were doing a bit of traveling around different venues and, and that, that type of thing. And then, of course, I got quite ill, and then all grounds were halt just as everyone else got stuck out of the music business with the COVID. Were you getting busier or was it like, were you doing a lot of gigs every week or? Well, we're doing one or two gigs a week. Yeah. Yeah. And you, were you still doing a lot of standing gigs? Because I mean, that's my memories of you. No, no, because you know, I, I sort of got uh, sick of that. I mean, I, I, I done standing gigs for pyramid. Uh, yeah. Metaphor. A whole rate of other <laughs> local bands. Uh, remember metaphor. You remember. You have to remember metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who was the Ronnie? Ronnie was the band leader. Yeah. Well, well Ronnie, I, Steve, Steve yeah, Gibbons. Ronnie. Yeah. And so uh, that Steve was... Gibbons. Yeah. Now that, that that just brings me to the time when we first yes, uh, met uh, Alexandra. Yes, the, the old brewery. Old brewery yes. in Oramore. Yeah, that was that was where you. Yeah. 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 Here we were. There we were setting up our gear, and in walks this gorgeous Polish girl, and all the lads turn around and go, "Ooh!" And you, and you go, "That's my girlfriend." And we're, ah, get out of here! How could that be your girlfriend? Jesus Christ! How the <laughs> hell can he be with her? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what we're all thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that because I think that was where you. So just to tell the listeners at home, Metaphor was a, a band I played in, and there was me and Steve Gibbons and. Uh, Jared Flynn from Loch and we had a few different drummers Jared Flynn Paul Collins and Martin Shannon played with us sometimes but M Martin played as a stand-in um, so first it was Jared or so it was Porrick and then Jared and I went back to Porrick I think it was a lot of changes but uh, Dave used to when when Steve couldn't do a gig I was playing bass and Steve was playing guitar and Ronnie played some guitar and sang 
And when Steve couldn't do a gig on guitar, I would go on guitar and Dave would come in on the bass. So we, we you did a good few standard gigs with us, I think. Of course, the old brewery, that was great crack at any any time, but uh, that's all gone now. Yeah, the brewery's gone, but I th- nobody opened it up again since it closed. No, it's not. Well, yeah, I think it was sold. It was sold, okay, yeah. Yeah, but it was definitely reopened, but I think it was just uh, like having a DJ type of thing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that was it. Because it was a great place. I mean, there were so many bands that played in there. You know, the the, the um, you had like what you call them Odyssey played there sometimes as well, and it was a great place. Yeah, do you remember the guitarist T. Uh, Hines? Yeah, D plays with you in Roadhouse, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's great mate. So, I mean, it, it had when they look back, they had some great bands playing there and everything, and um, and. Giovanni's takeaway was right across the street. Right across. Brilliant food. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring it back for the pints. It's great. Yeah. That was the place you got fat after the gig. <laughs> for sure. That was the place you'd be like, I know I'm not going into Giovanni's. I have enough now. Especially, I remember playing there, I think it was two nights in a row. And the first night I went, I'll go in tonight, but I won't go tomorrow night. And of course, the following night, I had a pint or two and went in. You know, couldn't stay away from the place. So, yeah, and, and for, for the listeners at home, Dave used to play with me and Alex, who he loved so much, in Collective Whisper. For, that was about a year, but then we went and had children and the band kind of fell apart then, as it does. You and Alex, yeah, you and Alex. Yeah. Me, and, me and Alex, not me and Dave. Um, because that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's hard to keep a band together, but, of course, with kids, they're brilliant and everything, but when kids come along, everything changes. So for us... You know, even though we would have loved to keep it going, it's just family life gets in the way and things dwindle out. Yeah, yeah. and of course you yeah. moved to Spain. We moved to Spain in 2013. And, you know, it's only now, this year, I haven't really been playing music for a long, long time in Spain because the culture of music wasn't great here. And I fell out of it. And I was just working and everything. And I was, you know, I'm kind of goal-oriented. So if I have nothing to be practicing for, I kind of fall out of touch with the instrument. And and then I and the other thing is then I stop kind of writing songs and everything comes to a grinding halt. Yeah, but it eats away you though when it's stuff like that. Yeah, it does. It eats. Yeah, because you you pick it up and you don't feel it in your fingers and you're like, oh, I'd love to be playing again. But that, thank God, before COVID started, I kind of started getting the itch again to write music and play music again. And I thought, look. I was like you in that sense. I was playing in a few different bands and I was playing bass in one band, playing guitar and other bands doing acoustic gigs. So I loved the whole cover band playing, you know, gigs. And and when I came to Spain, then, you know, I did some like summer resort stuff here for one or two summers, but it's not the same. And then there wasn't the same type of gigs here. So I never got into it. But then you miss it. You miss it because gigging is one of these things. It doesn't matter if it's 200 people in a bar or if it's 20,000. It gives you that buzz. Yeah, and what it? other job can you actually drink at the same time as well? You know? it's so it's good. And so now, I mean, that's that's the thing. And now it's like saying the band thing. We're doing the collective whisper thing again, but we're just doing it with ourselves. And in the future, if gigs ever come around and we ever get around to playing, we'll just hire some mercenaries, you know. The whole band thing, is hard to keep a band together. It's very hard. It's very hard. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Especially if there's no gigs, you know, and no money. And, and and the thing is, unfortunately for original bands now, I, I was doing, I, like I do some, I teach English here, and I was um, teaching in Sony Music last year, and 
it's crazy. The things they tell you that they want out of the artist. The artist has to be able to come in, produce their own videos, produce their own music, be able to sing, dance, be young, be good looking, be sexy, all of these things. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll just get my coat, so I'm leaving. <laughs> and here, over here, it's all reggaeton. It's all that kind of music. So the whole culture of music's really different now. Yeah. Well, the only money being made really was doing gigs. Right. So when did you stop playing this year then? When, when, was it in March you stopped or when did you have your last gig? No. Well, the thing is, it was last September was the last gig I had uh, with the band. And uh, oh, 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 to be honest with you, I wasn't feeling great at that point. Right. Uh, you know, everything was a, 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 sort of an effort to to do. Like uh, I'd be flat on my back at home and then, you know, leap up throw the gear in the car and drive to Limerick, do the gig, come home, flop out again. And I was working a day job at, at that time as well. So, you know, into work the next day. And I knew I, I, knew I wasn't well because uh, I, I used to be able to stand up for eight hours a day and I was having to sit down all the time and, and catch my breath. And I was having a lot of back pain. And what I realized was that it was my kidneys. And my kidneys had almost stopped working. And so... Uh, once I got into the hospital and had some serious tests, I said, listen, your kidneys are failing. This is what the problem is. Uh, I said, listen, just book me in now. Do whatever you have to do. So, yeah. And then I spent two weeks in hospital. When you were actually doing the gig, would you would find it very hard like to keep the stamina up? Or uh, Once I was there, I mean, it was fine because it's really only the two hours. Uh, it was nothing like I, I didn't have the energy that I used to have for sure, you know. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of just standing there playing rather than leaping around like I used to do. Yeah, yeah, you hadn't the same energy. So, come here, oh. let's, let's, um, let's talk a bit about your illness. You know, we're going to do a song later, but let's while we're on this kind of thing now, when, when did you first kind of feel there was something wrong? Uh, yeah, as I say, it was late last year. Um, I kept on, see, there was a lot of uh, talk around there being a vomiting bug around. And I would go through these these bouts of being sick and vomiting. Uh, and I'd go to the doctor, get some antibiotics, and I'd come okay for about a week or so, and then I'd be back vomiting again. Uh, so I went in for a few more tests uh, with the local doctors, and uh, they took bloods, and they thought, look, we'll just check your prostate and see... Uh, if that comes back in, in, in bloods. And it came back being at a very high level in, in the blood. So they can check it all with, in your blood now. So I went and had, had some other tests. Look, we're going to recommend you for a, a test at UHG Galway University Hospital. So I went in there, had a really unpleasant test. As you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> with the nice nurse. <laughs> Oh, I'd already had that one, and she was a doctor. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Uh, so I'd already had that one. Yep. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so I went for this, this other test, which uh, basically uh, in, involves uh, a spike going through your back passage into your prostate. Yeah, so th that really hurts. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So I was in the day clinic there, and they wanted me to wait around. So they came back and said, listen, 
um, your prostate is huge. Uh, it's blocking your kidneys from working properly and your kidneys are failing. Uh, if we can, we'd like to admit you into hospital right now. So that's what they did. And I ended up having emergency surgery, having stents put into my kidneys. And also, uh, oh, before that, they had to insert a catheter bag. Have you ever had, have you ever had a catheter bag? My dad had bad prostate problems when he was alive, and um, he I remember that, him saying, oh. the pain of putting the catheter in was terrible. Oh, oh yeah, well, so, yeah, I don't have to say it then. But uh, basically, they could hear me screaming throughout the ward when it was happening. <laughs> that's, how, that's how bad it was, and they all felt very sorry for me, blah, 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 and then took me up, uh, and then... Uh, Actually, they put me in the ICU, and then uh, look. Well, I can, can I ask you, Dave? When when they said your prostate was very large, could you feel that in any way? No. When you, you couldn't, no, you couldn't feel it, no. no, no. But all I had was really severe back pains, and they wouldn't go away. And all the vomiting was happening was because I couldn't pass any water into my okay. bladder, stopping water from my kidneys into my bladder. Because of basically all the tubes were compressed, there was nothing happening. Were they able to tell you for how long it was like it was uh, swollen? No, but I was like it was it was advanced, uh, so so advanced that the cancer had actually spread into the bone of my spine, and it, and it spread from the base of my spine all the way up to the base of my neck. So, and that's the situation I'm in now. So, I'm lucky to be walking even. So the the prostate it started off with the prostate and the cancer slowly spread up to your spine and over a few years or something. Well, for however long it was going on, but uh, the good news is it doesn't really spread to soft tissues like your liver or, or your or your kidneys. It spreads to your bones. But right. It, so so it's more like the bone marrow, is it? Well, it's it's basically my spine is riddled with cancer from the base to the base of my neck. So that's the the situation I'm in. First of all, when you had the, the diagnosed the prostate cancer, how long after did they realize it had spread to the spine? Uh, probably about a week because they started doing, once I was in hospital, uh, they, they sent me for a rake of tests, the, the CAT scans, the x-rays, and they could just see. And it was at that point uh, that the doctors came and told me, listen, uh, we've seen all this before, we'll probably give you uh, three years max to live. And that was about a year ago now, so uh, I'm doing really well now. Wow. So, so when they when they give that you know diagnosis or prognosis of the three years to live, is that something that they're just kind of throwing out there, or they do it by individual cases? No, that's just uh, like we, we, we at, at that stage you're not talking to normal doctors or GPs. You're talking to professionals who are at the top of their game, the heads of the departments. Uh, so that like they've seen all this many times before. Uh, but uh, on my most recent visit, they're really happy with the way things have worked out so far. Um, you know, so so much. Look, I'm doing so well that my insurance company won't pay my life insurance. They won't pay us. Oh, yeah, because I could live for ages. <laughs> yeah, catch twenty two. I'm actually worth. I'm actually worth uh, close to half a million dead. Wow. So, but, but explain that to us because they won't pay it before you die or they won't pay it after? 
Yeah, I've got one of these ancient bloody policies that we've been paying for uh, the best part of 30 years. Right. Basically, if you get sick and you've got been given 12 months or less to live, they will pay out. Oh. Because it, everything has moved on since then uh, yeah. and it's so much better. Like my doctor told me the other day, I said, listen, he had a 90-year-old patient who had this and he lived for 25 years and died of something else. So, the, <laughs> so you know yourself, insurance companies do not want to pay out. So they so, didn't pay him out in the end, did they? Oh, but who cares about him? I'm talking about me. <laughs> yeah. So doctor, my local GP is basically telling me, look, you can live for another 25 years. So it's a, a, a catch-22 in that, uh, yeah, I'm worth more than... Um, Worth more dead than I am alive, but I, you know, I'm happy to be alive and relatively poor. So <laughs> that's it, yeah, yeah. Well, it's better to have your 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 health than your wealth, isn't it? For sure. Well, so some would say, some would say, you know. Yeah, well, uh, to be honest with you, earlier on in the year when I came home and I had to deal with the catheter there, and I was in a great deal of pain. Uh, you know the. You know, there's uh, the suffering certainly makes you think about your own mortality, but it just makes you stronger in the end. Yeah. What was there? You know, can I ask you when you were diagnosed? What was the initial feeling for you? Was it was it like some hope or total despair? How did you feel? Uh, no, I didn't feel despair, but you know, your heart sinks when you hear news like that. So uh, yeah, it's tough to hear, and I think it was tougher on my uh, my immediate relatives. And my friends in the band, but uh, I'm still. Yeah, how did you how did you tell your family? Did you tell them together, or just tell one and then? Oh no, I had to see. My sister came and visited, and they were only, my sister and my brother flew into Ireland, and they only planned to stay a week. So they travelled from New Zealand thirty hours, stayed here for a week, and then flew home again, which is nuts. Crazy, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, I told them to wrap up warm, but they were not ready for the the cold weather. Yeah, so all they nobody was, is. All they, all they wanted to do is complain about how cold it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I had to send my sister uh, a text with the with the res, with the results uh, and what I'd been told. Um, while she was, uh, I think she was in Japan on her way home at that, that time. You know, so it was tough on them, and it's certainly, certainly been tough on uh, Mags, but uh, it's been a real trooper, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is because it's, you know, people kind of think it's not just the, the person who has it. It's all the people around them who have to live through it and oh, have to, right. yeah, and live after if, if they pass away, of course, you know. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. You know, you talk about cancer. I mean, cancer breaks, breaks up marriages, it destroys families. There's all this uh, damage that happens. It's not just happening to the person who's got it, you know. It's, there's all, all these ripple effects that happen uh, for one reason. There's a lot of pressure, and it can be very overwhelming for people. So what I do say to people whenever I get the opportunity is if you go and get regularly tested for, for anything, you know, yeah, whether, yeah. whether it's uh, cervical smears or prostate te tests, uh, you know, your family will thank you in the end. Yeah, I had a, I had a little scare myself uh, about a year ago. I when I when I was fifteen or sixteen, I started doing a carpentry apprenticeship, and I worked with a, a carpenter in Clare Galway for a few years. Okay, but 
um, about maybe, oh, let me see. Um, I, I, can't, I can't, it must be seven or eight years ago, or maybe more. He died of mesothelioma and, uh, you know, lung cancer. And oh, yeah. he, he had got, well, and what it was, though, was asbestos poisoning. So, yeah. so, of course, you know, when he died and then, you know, I always had this fear. I was thinking, wow, I used to work with him when I was younger. And I, I remember, you know, he, he, we were safe. I mean, but you just, yeah, I'm, I was trying to think back because at that time, you know, 30 years ago, we were working in, in houses, fitting kitchens and changing stuff. And, and there'd be asbestos on the floors and the ceilings and everything. So I used to think, I was thinking then, Wow, you know, I had that fear there. So then what happened was I got this pain in my chest, under under my kind of chest there and around my lungs. Yeah. And it was like, it was my ribs, you know, it felt like my ribs. And I, I know I had injured my ribs when I was uh, doing some exercise, but this per pain persisted for months. And when I went to the doctors, they said, oh, you probably just hurt your ribs, it'll be fine. So it kept going on. And then I was thinking, I hope there's nothing wrong with my lungs, you know, so... I went to the doctor and he said, look, we'll send you in for an x-ray. And I remember it was one of these moments where I went in for the x-ray and there was a little boy ahead of me and he was x-rayed. And the the the, the x-ray technician came out and said to his mother, oh, it's only this or whatever, don't worry. So I went in and he x-rayed my chest. And when he, I saw him looking at the sheets inside and you're thinking, what the hell is he seeing? What's there? Yeah. And uh but when he came out, he said, "Okay, your doctor will be. Your doctor will talk to you." And I thought he he didn't say anything. So those words, when he said them, I was thinking he didn't want to say anything. And I remember when I was walking out of the the uh, his office or the thing, I just turned around to look, and he was staring at me. And that stare he gave me frightened the shit out of me because it made me feel like there's something there, there's something wrong. And so I I had to wait two or three days then to see my doctor, and I went in. And they said, I said, you know, and you, you know, as well as anyone, when you're sitting down in front of the doctor and they're going to tell you stuff. Yeah. And then he said to me, it's everything's fine. Oh, and, good. And I was like, but that it's like a, that mix of emotions because you're, you, you're kind of because of everything that happened. I was I was you face your mortality and you kind of start thinking what happens now? I have kids and I have a wife and what, you know. And, and the fear of death and all these things, you start thinking about it. So I can imagine, I, I was lucky there was nothing there and I was very lucky. And because I'd known one or two people who had died from that over the years. And, you know, and you, as you said, your, was it your dad or your grandfather died from that? Your grandfather died of that. Uh, he, he was in the Battle of Jutland in World War One, and uh, he was a gunner. But in between doing that, he was also down under under the decks and those old battleships were full of asbestos yeah yeah and you know and coal powered as well which didn't help and and he was a heavy smoker so he died when he was 50 you know back when they were smoking there were no filters on cigarettes it was just a cigarette no you know? no no yeah. So, yeah so i mean th this is the thing yeah it's it's like that i can imagine for you because you know i was lucky but for you then you got the bad news so you have to face your mortality. And, of course, you have to think about everybody else that's in your life, no? These are big thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sort of in the the situation where there are no children. It's just mags. So uh, it, you know, it's, it wasn't that bad. But, uh, 
Yeah, it certainly makes you appreciate the things that you have and the things that you've taken for granted up to then. Was there, like in the last few months with all your treatment and the chemo, was there moments like you felt like giving up ever or you've always been strong? Uh, the, 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 the only moments that I really felt like, uh, well, I wouldn't say giving up, but it was certainly bring me down was when I went through the process of filling out all the insurance forms. Only to be told at the end of it, oh, we're not going to pay. You know, you're not sick enough. You're doing quite, the doctors say you, you're quite well at the moment. So that, that really annoyed me and it really got to me because, you know, we're talking about, you know, quite a large sum of money. That of course, yeah. I'm not going to get until, I, and, and when I do get it, it won't be, will be of no use to me because I'll be on fast legs at that point. In that situation, especially if you're sick and you need help and you need time off work and all this, I mean, that money would be so handy. Yeah, it would be. Look, I got plenty. I got uh, plenty of time off work. I got, uh, I was, you know, I got paid at least six months. Uh, and in the end, I thought, well, I was, you know, there's no, I, I'm not going to go back to this job anyway. You know, I've got better things I want to do with my time than than that. So I just ended up resigning from that. And, you know, I, I get a small amount from the uh, social welfare each week, and that's, you know, and of course, Mag. Mags is still out work and she's doing okay. For Mags, like going, going back to how has it been for Mags? I mean, is, is she, is, is Mags, is, Mags is very strong, I think, anyway. So how has it been for her? She's very stoic uh, in that she doesn't really talk a lot about her feelings anyway. But, uh, uh, you know, I know it's been tough on her. Uh, but, uh, you know, I would have really been in a tough place if I'd been a single man living alone, you know. Especially not being an Irish citizen. The thing is, it's great because, I mean, that's the one blessing. You know, I'm not religious or anything, but the thing is, it's great when you have somebody there you can rely on and support you because maybe if you are on your own, you wouldn't feel like putting up the fight. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, like, uh, for example, one of, the, uh, one of the drugs I'm on, and I'm on a, a fair old cocktail of drugs every month, just one of them is 1200 euros for one you know so if it wasn't for things like the uh, the Irish drug scheme where they pay most of that uh it, it would have been absolutely crushing financially and, and people just wouldn't pay that no uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to pay us no they wouldn't be able to pay it so uh, I'm very fortunate and I'm very, very grateful with the with the way that uh, the system is here even though, you know, it's not completely free, it's sort of helped me a lot. Yeah. So, so, so tell us, what's your, like, you, you've obviously, you've had chemo and you've had, you know, some surgeries and stuff. So what's your kind of, what, what do you do now? What's your other alternative stuff you do to, to prolong everything? <laughs> I do a lot of meditation now, Simon, and I'm doing a lot of, uh, like, breathing exercises. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Wim Hof. I know, I know the guy. Yeah, he's very good. Yeah. I've never, I've never done any of his techniques, but I've seen him. He's very interesting. Well, look, well listen, there's an app on the phone that you can get. The simplest uh, methods of just as breathing exercises. You do about thirty breaths, and then you hold your breath for as long as you can, and then you let it all out. And you do that's a round, and you do at least three or four rounds of that. And of course, then there's the very unpleasant side of what he does, which are the ice baths. And 
and the cold showers, which uh, you know, the worst part of it is getting into one. I've seen I've seen a video of him doing the ice baths in the middle of the woods, and you know, yeah, is he is he is he Scandinavian or Danish or what? what uh, where is he from? I think he's Danish. Yeah, Danish. But, yeah, uh, like it, it's really uh, helped. As soon as I started doing doing it, I, I noticed it really helped. Uh, when the gyms opened uh, after the last uh, lockdown, I started doing swimming at the local pool in Kligori, the hotel, hotel. And that, that was great. When I first started, the first day I started, I did one length freestyle and then had to stop for 30 seconds to catch my breath. Okay. Gradually, that got better and better. But from day one, I was doing 30 lengths, no matter how long, no matter how long because I've been swimming and surfing all my life since I was a little kid. You know, I'm well used to, to water sports. Uh, and by the end of it, uh, I could go into a length and then turn around without stopping. But and the other thing I do was swimming underwater, so I could do a half a length of the pool underwater without taking a breath. Now, when I started doing the Wim Hof method uh, with the breathing, I was able to swim a whole length underwater. Wow, that's brilliant! Yeah, and, and then, and then the, 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 this lockdown happened, and that all had to stop. Yeah, but you know, can I tell you an interesting story? When when I was uh, when I was younger and like in my teens, I used to do karate for a long time. And um, oh, okay. one of the guys I used to train with Andrew Shocknessy in he him me and him were training partners. And Andrew has a gym and he does all the triathlons in Carla Strand. But yeah. what we used to do was before we would go to karate, we would go swimming. So we would train two hours doing karate, and then we would. But before we would swim for two hours, and our our regime at the end, every time we finished swimming, we would do the underwater laps. Yeah. So when we start, when we started out doing it, like you could do half. But I remember in the end, and this was in the pool in Chum, the old pool, and it was like 25 meter pool. So in the end, we could do like nearly two lengths underwater. And it was just through gradual practice and exactly. controlling your breathing. And it's a, But it really makes you feel good when you can do it. Oh, it does, yeah. Like I've timed myself now because I'm still doing the breathing exercises. The long, longest I can hold my breath now is two and a half minutes. Wow, now, that's good. It is good considering I spent my whole life uh, smoking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've only only recently stopped smoking about uh, a month ago. So wow. yeah. 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 And and you said earlier that you you don't drink or do any drugs or anything now, like no weed oh, or anything. I, I, oh hell, I used to, and I used to do it a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, like uh, I couldn't wait to get out of hospital and 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 spin up a spliff, you know. It was, and uh, <laughs> when I came out of hospital, I, I'd, I'd been like two weeks without a joint. I went and smoked a joint and almost passed out. Really, it it totally took your breath away. Yeah, I went out and smoked a joint. I was like, well, how am I gonna? Can I get back in the house now? Because <laughs> I remember that I had a catheter bag strapped to my leg as well. Yes, yes, the, yes, yeah. yeah. I was not. Will you explain something to me then? Because obviously, you know, a, a lot of people, my own mother included, uh, have used the CBD oil and stuff. And obviously, the CBD oil, most of the stuff people buy has THC removed. But when you're for what you were going through, did did anyone explain to you like the the disadvantages of smoking weed or you know anything while you're ha having that treatment? Or what was it doing to you? Listen, no one in the medical uh, profession here even discussed it with me. So it was just something that I've always done. 
uh, from, a from a teenager, I'd smoke weed, always smoked weed, was never going to stop smoking weed. Uh, and it's only recently I thought, yeah, you know what, uh, I'll give it a crack without it and just see how I feel. Now I'm beginning to wonder if I'll ever go back to it. Right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. See, uh, what would make me go back to it is if I was in any great deal of pain. Mm, yeah, just that more as a, as a for pain, it's great, you know. Yeah, but uh, uh, to be fair, now that I'm uh, doing the Wim Hof method with the breathing, and I mean, and I've given up the the drink and the drugs, it's it's like being high all the time anyway when you're doing this breath the regular breathing exercises. You know, I'm full of energy. I've still got the same warped sense of humor. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need anything to keep that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think that for regular smokers of weed and cannabis that, you know, they when they get off it, they have to find, obviously, new alternatives to keep that kind of high, like whether it be sport or other things? Well, it depends if they're ca casual users or they're just actually abusing it to cover up. Uh, the, uh, like, I used to smoke it a lot because... Uh, it would put, it would mean that I didn't have to focus on other negative parts of my life, but maybe what was going on at home, or, or, or to fill a void in my life, uh, I just fill it up with weed, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I, I think it's an easy thing to do because for me, don't get me wrong, you know, don't get yeah. me wrong, drugs are fun. Yeah, drugs are fun. I mean, the thing yeah. is, like, I don't, I don't smoke uh, weed really at all much now. But every couple of weeks, we have a friend that comes down and she visits us, and she'll always have some weed with her. And so every maybe once a month, we'll have a nice little smoke. But it's only a short term thing. And then the next day, because I've seen and I've lived with people who have like, you know, abused it, as you said, and. It's like anything, you know, like people will say, oh, the benefits of weed are great and weed is great. But anything when it's overdone is not. I mean, if, if somebody if somebody eats too many chocolate cakes, they're going to get fat. If you drink too much, you're going to become an alcoholic. So it's the same with weed or any drugs. You have to use it socially. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's really funny. If, if there's any sort of cancer I should have, it should be lung cancer. But I don't. <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> weed, because I've smoked a lot of weed. Yeah, yeah, you, you've had your fair share, yeah. And so tell us, what, when you're doing the Wim Hof stuff and the meditation, how has that changed your outlook on life and have you kind of looking in different directions now? Uh, well, it certainly made me a more spiritual person, I think. Um, although I was always, uh, like I was in the first wave of uh, what they would have called the new age, you know, all the crystals and stuff. Back in the uh, late 80s and 90s. So, yeah, it was like a search for self-discovery, really. And it's uh, everyone's journey is uh, is different, of course, you know. Or, you know, for me, uh, like, I think I got made to go to Sunday school once, and it was only going there once that made me realize this is, you know, this is not for me, you know. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of dogma in those types of religions, you know. And the hierarchies and the way they're set up to operate, uh, and the power structures involved. So no, it wasn't. You know, sometimes there's not a huge difference between governments and religions. You know, because the thing about it is, it's somebody in control who's passing down rules and regulations, and the people have to adhere to it. And if you don't, you're considered a sinner or whatever. So this is the point. 
you have you have to be a spiritual person nowadays i think and and the thing is you know there are so many different holistic therapies out there now my own sister Sharon Fitzmaurice, Morris is a, a big into a lot of this stuff and she does the angel reiki and she does the meditation oh, okay. Yeah, she does. She'll actually be on the show in a few weeks, you know, and they have a new book out called Awaken Your Wellbeing. And it's about it's all different therapists giving their views and and their their types of treatment. So, I mean, it's great now that people have all these options. Myself, I'm spiritual, but in my own way, I, I'm not I'm not like, you know, but saying that I think however spiritual you are, when you face a crisis in your life or something that you know, test your own mortality or puts it in front of you, it can change a lot of things. So you can never say never. Someone can say, oh, I'd never be into that kind of stuff or I'd never look at that. But you don't know. No, you don't know. And the thing is, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, scope for all sorts of different uh, treatments. You know, you mentioned Reiki's and angels there. I'm into all that, all that stuff. And uh, people, you know, I don't really care what people think. Uh, well, it's, it's your life. It's yeah, your life. on their own journey, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, look, if it's like everything, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're going to pick out paint for the color of your wall. You might have to buy five pots before you find the right color. Life is like that with spirituality and with choices. You have to find the things. And maybe you say, oh, that was rubbish, or that didn't work for me, or that didn't help. But eventually you might find something that benefits you. And what harm is it doing for you trying them? No harm. No, no, that's right. It's no, it's no harm. It's this is your life, and the thing is, peop, other people who aren't in the same position can't say to you, "Oh, don't do that. Why are you doing that? That's ridiculous." Or da da da, because they don't know. And and I mean, do you feel now for you? Are you, are you because you're like on this road to recovery, and you're you know very determined. Are you looking for different things all the time to help you? Or are you kind of said, this is what, this is my regime right now? How, how are you? Uh, no, I'm always trying different things. Uh, and, you know, everything is, is open. You know, I'm not discounting anything. So, yeah, it doesn't matter how wacky it sounds. I'm doing it. My favorite thing really is just to put on, a, a, go to YouTube, get some Reiki. Uh, yeah. And just uh, with some nice music and a nice salt bath. That's nice, yeah. That's yeah. just relaxing. Just yeah, relaxing, yeah. 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 And, you know, a bit of quiet meditation. Yeah. But, I mean, De-stressing. First, yeah. But, like, first thing in the morning, I'm up early. I'm doing my meditation. Uh, I'm doing the, my breathing exercise, the Wim Hof Method. And I'm finding it's working great for me. That's brilliant. And, Kamir, just, uh, we'll, we'll, I don't want to stay on this subject too long. Uh, the one thing I want to ask you, how has it changed your outlook for the future? Like, are you, are you scared of what's to come? Or are you... No, basically, uh, once you've been through uh, something like I have, I mean, it's very easy to just wither up and give up. Uh, I've, to be honest with you, I've become quite fearless about everything, everything now. Uh, I'm not really afraid of anything. I'm certainly not afraid of death because, um, you know, I've, I've faced that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, no, I'm very hopeful. Uh, I mean, what, and as far as the world situation goes, I think everything's going to be okay. Yeah, and, you know, if I was to ask you, to, like, you know, for people, for men especially anyway, with their prostrate, what kind of message would you say to them, like, you know, do you think people are saying, oh, I'll check it tomorrow or I'll do it in a few weeks? Or what, what message would you give them? 
I would say uh, just go and get it, get it done, and you know, stop messing around. Especially if you have families, because what you're doing really uh, by not doing it is, you, you, in a way, you're being quite selfish. Mm. You know, and 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 at the end of the day, even if you do get cancer and you end up dying, uh, you know, there's a certain part of ourselves that will go on. Uh, yeah, of course. And do do you do you think that it's a fear? Most most men don't go and get checked because they're they have a fear of what's there. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, it's a society thing. Men are conditioned to not go to doctors, so, you know. And it is a fear, and it's a fear they don't want to face up to or talk about. They don't want to talk about, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. You know, to anybody, uh, let alone a doctor. Lo and, you know, or a female doctor, even worse, especially men of a certain... You know, men are, men are meant to be tough, men are meant to be the breadwinners, blah, blah, blah. That's what society's told us. Uh, but it's crap. So just go and get it sorted out. You know. Well, that's it. I mean, just do it and, and get on with it. And and you know, I think I think it's a great message because hopefully when other people hear this, they will think, okay, you know, I've seen what this guy is going through, whether I know him or not, I've seen what he's gone through. And you know, and it's it's hearing another person who's real, whose outlook is on it, rather than looking at an ad on the TV. Yeah, well, like I said at the beginning, uh, cancer is an epidemic, and it makes the COVID situation seem like nothing really. You've got to realize there's 65 million people dying every year, and only a very small percentage of that is COVID, but a much larger percentage of people who die of cancer. And it's totally preventable. All you had to do was go to the doctor, you know. And But, no, I won't. I'll put it off, i put it off. And then by that time, you can see a doctor, which, well, I'm sorry, it's spread throughout your spine, and we'll give you three years to live. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Okay, so listen, let's play a song. Let's play a song. Okay. Here we go.
I don't know if you can hear any of that. that no, I could, I could. That's the that's the kind of song you could play on all night. Yeah. <laughs> do you do you now speaking of guitars? Do you still have a big enough collection, or do you I, have you narrowed I, it down? No, I have a ridiculous amount of guitars for a guy who plays bass. I have about seven. Yeah, seven. They've been sitting in cases, not doing anything. But look, I have probably about the same number of bases. Yeah, you can only play one at a time, so you know. Do you still have Do you still have the Steinberg bass? I do. Yep. Yeah, the headless, the headless bass, yeah. no? Yeah, I still yeah. have that. But I mean, I, I have a, I have an Ampeg uh, amp with the eight by ten fridge cabinet. Really? You know, yeah. No, it was great for the motorcycle rally. So I hope to start yeah. up again. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're great. But that's the thing with gear. Like, when I came over to Spain, I sold a lot of guitars. And yeah. now I uh, now I have just my my trusted Ibanez I've had for years. And I have, uh, like, a Line 6 guitar, which is great for recording because it has all the different uh, tonal differences. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of looking now at buying new guitar, electric guitar. I'm like, you know, Jesus, maybe. How are, maybe... How are you, you going to justify this? Yeah, exactly. How am I going to justify it? I'll be like, if this podcast ever makes millions, then I can buy a new guitar, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, Dave, I'm going to finish up with you. It's been great chatting, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one or two last questions. So when, when you look back at everything you've done in your life so far, and you know, and, and I, and I, I put a caveat in that because you're going to do a lot more. I can see it and I can feel it, feel it from you. What's some, what's been some of the ones that stand out for you? I would say I'd say moving to Ireland was one of the greatest things I ever did. Okay, why was that? Was that be, because of mags or the people or what was it? No, you know what it is. Uh, New Zealand is a great country and everything. Uh, lovely place, lovely beaches, lovely people. But uh, I mean, it is so far away from the rest of the world and what's going on. Uh, it takes ages to get away to get there, and uh, the music scene was nothing like like. The music scene in Galway for live bands is more vibrant than the whole music scene in New Zealand for, for, for live bands. You know what I mean? Yeah, Galway's amazing. Yeah, New Zealand is such a small place, and it's only the top echelon, the top clicks that get any work anytime. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. The rest of the time, it's uh, sports bars and DJs. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, you know... I, I... I told that to somebody in Spain. They'd be saying to me, oh, why do you think Galway is different to Spain or Madrid? And I'm like, look, if you're walking down the street in Galway and you pick 10 bars, five of them will have music, at least five. You know, if it's... To, to be fair, most of those bars, the bands would be playing Galway Girl. Yeah, of course. That's the problem. <laughs> and, and, and if you say, if you say, oh, play Galway Girl, you know, they're... They're, unfortunately, now they're playing the Ed Sheeran version, not even the Steve Earle one. <laughs> that gets my goat, you know. Um, you know. How's your Ed Sheeran? I mean, he, he he did well, didn't he? No, I mean he's he's done well. You, you've got you've got to admire the guy because even if you don't like his music, you've got to admire the work he's done. I mean, and he's yeah. you know and he's, he's, he's you know and he had it all rallied against him with all that ginger hair and everything. You know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, like you know that that's the thing. It's like if you had said ten years ago, no, this guy won't make it. You would have been totally wrong, wouldn't you? <laughs> do you feel one thing? Do you feel that the the New Zealand people and the Irish people are very similar? 
Well, they are, but a lot of that has to do with the Irish immigration 150 years ago to New Zealand. To uh, New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand was colonised by the English, but there's a hell of a lot of Irish that went there. Uh, yeah. you know, the ones that didn't get deported to Australia went to New Zealand, you know? Yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting is you're... It's very strange, but you're actually the third New Zealand guy that I've played in bands with or played music with because I, I used to play in a group called the FNGs and we had a guitar player from New Zealand. I think he was from Wellington, Connor. I can't remember his last name now, but lovely guy, mad guy too. Uh, I remember actually seeing you guys, I think, play at the King's Head. Yeah, yeah. So Connor was from New Zealand and there's a guy that lives down Tume Headford with Jeff Ward. Do you know Jeff? No, Jeff Ward is is from New Zealand as well, and um, he is here for a long time, and he plays more traditional music and folk music, and he plays trumpet and all that. So it's amazing. Even around County Galway, there's at least three uh, Kiwi musicians I know. Oh, okay. It's great, isn't it? Well. It's a new type of immigration here. So, okay, so listen, Dave, to finish up, what are your what are your wishes for the future? What's your hopes? Uh, well, you know, I just hope that uh, everything settles down and, you know, there's a lot of peace and love that that happens with everybody. But, uh, I hope there's, uh, you know, an end to war. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. And and it, I have to ask you, as a musician, what music now is kind of getting you through lockdown? What are you listening to? Well, you know what? Uh, we started, uh, Roadhouse started doing this original band. Uh, there was uh, one or two songs there. Like we, we we have songs out there. It's a, a band called Mercury Mouth, and uh, there's a there's a couple of songs by them. The arrangements were very very much like classical music. So, and they were very difficult to learn so, uh, at the time. So the one way I got my one of the ways I got my head into the space of learning these songs was listening to a lot of classical music. So I still listen to a lot of classical music. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. And and uh, that, that that Mercury Mouth, is that is, is the music on Spotify or anything? Can people listen to us? Spotify, yeah. Uh, and Annie Get You Gun is the other part of the band. Yeah. So uh, it's, two, uh, it's a long, drawn-out story, but it's split into two different bands, Mercury Mouth, and Annie Get Your Gun, but they're basically the same band. So, yeah, I, I highly recommend you have a, a listen to... Yeah, to well, 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 you're going to... You, hopefully you can give me all the links and we'll point people in the right direction. Once they listen to this, they can go and listen to Spotify and any other links that you think are relevant, even even as regards the, the cancer. If you have any helpful links or anything, you can give me whatever you like. We'll share it as much as we can, you know. So listen... Listen, Dave, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And Absolutely. all I can say to you is, you know, you've always been a great guy. I've always liked your company. And, you know, I love playing with you. And, I mean, I admire you for the fight you're putting up at the moment. I think it's brilliant. And where some people might have given up and you don't care. You're just going to fight it out. And the thing is, I can see you living those 25 years you were speaking well, about, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I try not fight too much uh, because, but you know, what can happen is you could give uh, the wrong sort of energy to the whole thing, but I'm getting through it. I'm getting through it the best I can and just being a bit, you know, as 
better person as I can be. Yeah, and I mean, the, the idea for me with these podcasts is to have interesting people with positive messages that can, you know, inspire some people. We, it doesn't have to be millions. All it has to be is 10 or 20. And those those people can be on the road to recovery like you are. And I, I think you'll do fine. And, you know, I, I look forward to bringing you back on the show in a few months. And, you know, we'll have a chat and see how you're doing, you know? Okay, yeah. So Sounds thanks good. a lot, Dave. And we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Big up for the missus. Yes, big up for the missus. Brilliant, oh, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Right, Bye-bye. Okay, thank you guys for listening. That was David Proctor, all the way from New Zealand, but now living in Turlock Moor. And that was a very interesting interview. And I hope you, you know, listen to Dave's story and maybe it can help you. Maybe it can help somebody else out there who needs to check something. And, you know, let's not go down that road, everybody, of... Uh, Finding out too late and then nothing can be done. Okay, um, and we had a little bit of music there. Hey Joe from Jimi Hendrix. We enjoyed playing on that. I hope you liked it too. So, next week's guest is Mr. Leo Morin from Tume, who also is a founding member of the Saw Doctors. And me and Leo have an interesting chat. So, come along next week and join us for that one. Thank you guys and have a lovely weekend and take care of yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs>